friends, this is the Reverend Mary Vano, and I want to welcome you today to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today I'm welcoming my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Kate Alexander, who is the Rector of Christ Episcopal Church in downtown Little Rock. You may also know her as Catherine B. Alexander, the author of Saving Beauty, A Theological Aesthetics of Nature, which she published a few years ago. Kate, it is always a pleasure to talk with you, so thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be with you today. So I want us to talk about your book, Saving Beauty. But before we do that, Kate, I'd love for our audience to get to know you better. What can you tell us about yourself? I am a parish priest in Little Rock and a mom of three navigating virtual school in these crazy times. Wife, also avid walker of my golden retriever. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that your book, Saving Beauty, was part of your doctoral work. Is that right? Yes, it was actually my dissertation that I was able to publish. So it's a book about the intersection between the beauty of nature and our salvation, which I think is a really important topic for all of us living in this time of ecological degradation. So what inspired you to take on this topic? I would say there's a sort of personal aspect of that question and also an academic one. And so on the personal side, like all of us, I'd had amazing experiences out in the natural world, just overwhelmed by an experience of beauty. One that came to mind that really fueled this project was an experience in Yosemite in California. If you're not moved to tears in a place that beautiful, like nothing's going to move you, you know, like it's just (laughs) the most amazing thing. And so I had that kind of awe-inspiring experience there. And I wondered, like, what's happening spiritually in that moment when you're just so overwhelmed by beauty, moved by it, inspired by it, you feel close to God. I wanted to know the mechanics of that experience. What happens theologically in that kind of moment? What happens spiritually? If you ask anyone, like, what have your experiences of awe in the natural world been? I think just about everybody can come up with something like that. For many here in Arkansas, it's people will talk about Camp Mitchell up on Petty Jean. Plenty of beautiful spots in Arkansas that have been similarly spiritually significant. You know, I had those kind of personal experiences. And I was also a doctoral student in theology, and I thought, huh, I wonder if I could really explore that in a dissertation. And also, I was studying ecological theology at the time and theological aesthetics, sort of two different subfields within contemporary theology. I was getting more and more depressed reading ecological theology, to be honest. Rightly so, it's full of a lot of worry and despair about ecological destruction. And I had read plenty of interesting and compelling works by authors who would say our Christian duty is to recycle more or curb our appetites and and all that. And that's important work. But I wanted to come at ecological theology from perhaps a different perspective. There's the sort of ascetic approach of curbing our appetites. I don't know that that's going to inspire a lot of people. I wondered, is there a different way in that might be more in line with those kinds of awe-inspired experiences in the natural world? 
When I first came to Arkansas, I can remember that members of St. Margaret's who I was just meeting, some of them would tell me, don't expect to see me during duck season (laughs) or deer season. And then they would say, my most spiritual times are out in the duck woods. And I thought that sounded like a pretty lame excuse (laughs) to miss church (laughs) at first. But I guess I now, having spent more time in the natural state, I can see a little bit about what they mean. I'm not sure I'll ever be a hunter, but I do spend a little bit of time with my husband who loves to go fishing. I think that's truly a spiritual experience for him, being in nature, in that quiet beauty. It's really powerful. So the immediate question that came to my mind when I encountered your book was about defining beauty. How do we define beauty? What is it? And is it simply like a pleasing appearance and therefore entirely subjective? Or is it something else? That in some ways is a $10,000 question. So thanks for starting with one of the most difficult ones. (laughs) I think back to something that Plato said so long ago, he's sort of famous for the phrase, the beautiful things are difficult. And by that he meant it's very hard to define beauty or what is beautiful. And it sort of depends on which century you're talking about in terms of how one would answer that question. In ancient Greece, actually, things were a little clearer than they are now. There was really a sort of agreed upon set of criteria for something to be called beautiful. And really, it had to do with a fitting together of parts. So symmetry and proportionality. There were sort of these classical understandings of beauty that were pretty widely accepted, at least in the Mediterranean Near Eastern world. In some ways, Christian theology inherited that world in terms of classical understandings of beauty. And so the early church adopted some of that language. But as the centuries go on, beauty kind of has, it's almost like a river. It has these sort of winding path in terms of not only definition, but theological significance. And so part of what I do in the book is trace that history of natural beauty, or beauty in general, but specifically natural beauty, and what theologians thought beauty was and why it mattered through the ages. You can look at the sort of early church, the medieval church, period of Reformation movements through the Enlightenment, and you get to where we are today, which is kind of a muddle, to be honest. Once you get through the Enlightenment, beauty becomes a matter of taste. It has to do with what the observer thinks about something. We've kind of lost the classical language of talking about beauty in and of its own right as an attribute of God or what the ancients would call a transcendental reality, along with things like love and justice. Beauty was right up there in the early days. Theological aesthetics as a movement is really about reclaiming beauty as a proper territory for theological work again. It really went through the ringer in the Enlightenment. That's so interesting. I think maybe because I'm a post-enlightenment person, I struggle with beauty being sort of a surface idea. But I think that older concept of beauty is not just surface. 
something that is beautiful expresses a wholeness in and of itself. Yeah. And classically, in the early church, people talked about the experience of beauty as already having an inherent religious dimension. And I think that can still speak to us when we think about being out fishing in Arkansas, right? Or that there's some almost church-like experience out in the natural world. So we sort of instinctually understand that the experience of beauty can be religious, but it might just take us a little more reconstruction to put those things back together. So you argue in your book that beauty, and particularly then the beauty found in nature, is something that should interest people of faith. So what is the relationship between salvation and beauty? Why is this important? I looked at a sort of quaint old philosopher named Josiah Royce to look at this very question. He was really popular in the early 1900s. American pragmatist. He was from the wilds of California, so not really part of the establishment at the time. And did I say quaint, quirky, ornery might be a better word? He had sort of a funny personality, very contrarian. And he loved the idea of church, but never went to church himself particularly, but he was fascinated by it. And he wondered how it is that people could sort of become members of a Christian community. What are the experiences that people can have that draw them into community? Now, again, he himself was not drawn into community, but he liked it on a theoretical level. And so he came up with this idea, what he called sources of religious insight. And lots of different things can be these sources of insight. And an insight for him is religious when it has some indication or reveals to us something about our need for salvation. You can have all kinds of insight, but for an insight to be religious, it has to be some window into that human need for salvation. So he thought, well, you know, you can have this source of religious insight in things like your reason. So you can think your way into that understanding. You can will yourself into that understanding. You could experience it through your family, through your work. There are lots of different sources of religious insight. And one of them was beauty for him. He wouldn't define it, though. Like so many sort of post-Enlightenment people, going all the way back to Immanuel Kant, they would say, yeah, beauty, the experience of awe, definitely religious, but I'm not going to put words to how that works. And that was true for Royce as well. But he did say, like, you could be out in the mountains, you could be listening to a symphony, some experience of beauty, and you'll suddenly have this insight into your need for salvation. And so I sort of ran with that idea of his that natural beauty could be that kind of source of religious insight. And what Royce said is that when you have that insight, you could be all by yourself in the mountains and have this sort of moment, and that draws you redemptively into community, ultimately into the church for him, at least theoretically. So you could have this like completely solitary experience out somewhere beautiful, and eventually that gives you an insight into that you need salvation and that you're going to find that in community, which I thought was a really interesting idea. So too, and it's 
This idea of the mystery of it, the way that beauty defies our ability to define it, that in and of itself may speak to us a little bit of God. It's like when we encounter that thing which we cannot explain that goes beyond our reason and yet touches us powerfully, there's something divine in that mystery. Well, you're speaking Royce's language. I think he said there are three aspects to this moment of insight. One is this unity. You get this sense of unity of all things. There's coherence. So not only is there unity, but there's some sort of thoroughly permeating reality. And it's personal. There's personal touch. And if that isn't an understanding of God, I don't know what is. So during this pandemic, and you and I were just talking about the challenges of returning to in-person worship during the pandemic, during this time where it's still not quite safe. It might be safer than it was, but it's still not quite safe. So you and I have our challenges ahead of us, but we're in different contexts. You're downtown and I'm out in the suburbs. At our location, we have the advantage of having a really nice outdoor space. That is not a parking lot. A parking lot feels a bit industrial. I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't have much personality to it. It doesn't feel natural. doesn't express the natural beauty of the world around us. So we have our memorial garden where we can worship. And even before the pandemic, we were already doing some outdoor worship, especially at the Easter vigil. We would stay outside to do that vigil with the great fire and all that. And I began to understand that our people really loved worshiping outside. Easter vigil is a huge hit every year because <laughs> people just loved that opportunity to be outside at night, to be able to listen to scripture and look up at the stars at the same time. And so even before this pandemic began, we had started playing with having regular daily office services outside in the Memorial Garden. And then after the pandemic and after we had had to stop gathering in person, but during that window of time where it was at least safe for us to gather outside, we made use of the Memorial Garden again. And it was a smaller community. We had all kinds of safety restrictions in place, all the distancing and masks, et cetera. And yet it was still a very holy time together. And my sense was that the fact of the outdoor space, the nature around us helped it feel very holy. We couldn't sing, but the birds were singing around us. They became our choir. Just something really special about that. Those outdoor worship services, I think, gave us a glimpse of another concept that you discussed in your book, the ancient Greek idea of eudaimonia, which is translated happiness, but the real meaning is deeper than that. It's not about having ease of life or having wealth, but a deep level of human flourishing. It's so hard to say that we've been flourishing at any level over the past year of this pandemic, but I wonder if you've had any experience where you've been able to glimpse that eudaimonia. What have you been doing during the pandemic, in other words, to sustain your well-being? Well, I did mention my golden retriever at the Mm -hmm. beginning, and so yes, we've been outside as much as possible. And I have noticed that in the stress of this past year, that has felt like a source of healing, literally just being outside. A classical theological question is why God created this world and not another one. 
why this world and why is it created the way that it is? I think that the beauty around us is designed or in a symbiotic relationship with our souls. Theologians talk about having a capacity for God built into us. And so if you think about the fact that God created this world with the natural beauty that it has, and we have a capacity for that in one way or another, it makes sense to me that even going outside to walk my dog has a healing effect on my soul. It's interesting to me that in a pandemic, we've worshipped outside out of necessity, but I also think that's been out of instinct. Let's get outside because our souls need it. Our souls do need it. I also walk my dog in the neighborhood most every day. Just this morning, I was walking her and noticed that I was looking at the ground. I think sometimes my habit is to look at the pavement, mostly so that I don't fall. But I, but I don't really need to always be looking at the ground. And something just reminded me to look up. We have beautiful surroundings. And I usually walk in my neighborhood, so they're really familiar surroundings. It takes a little bit of mindfulness to notice, to look at the trees and what's happening with the trees and which ones might have been damaged or which ones might have survived this recent snowstorm that we have had. That in and of itself is a form of prayer, paying attention. Somebody famous said that, and I can't remember who it is at the moment, but that attention is a form of prayer and feels like a natural response to this particular world that got created. to read my favorite quote from you in your book. It's near the end when you say this, I do not have an answer, but I linger on beauty. I'm advocating for beauty out of an intuition that fear and despair will bring us only so far toward ecological well-being. Joy and delight in beauty have the power to move our hearts in a different way, in a way in which our hearts were created to be moved. Our capacity for beauty might be our strongest ally in environmental work. So I had to read your book to really understand the title of it. But when I did, I saw that it was a perfect title. Saving beauty is a divine calling to save the beauty of this world, that we may be saved by it. There is a relationship there. That idea, it actually goes all the way back to Calvin, of all people. John Calvin, who was walking in the woods, whether this is urban legend, I don't know, but he was in the woods and considered it God's cathedral, right? It was so beautiful. And obviously it revealed the glory of the creator. And again, I think that's an experience we've all had. He also said in a very Calvinist kind of way that seeing that beauty could create a moment of conversion where we realize our sinful nature and get back toward the right track. And so the poignancy of experiencing natural beauty can do just that. It reveals God's glory to us, and it also convicts us to save the beauty that we're created to experience. Well, I'm glad that I read your book. I think it'll help me be a little bit more mindful about my appreciation of the world around me, noticing what is happening, and admiring the beauty that God has created. 
which I think makes a difference as we turn our hearts toward God and toward others in taking care of this world in which we live. So Kate, you have made my joy complete today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a joy talking with you. Thanks for having me. I want to thank all of our listeners today, too. We appreciate you joining us, taking your time to explore these ideas with us. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, please do send me an email at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. And please do join us again next time, because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.